With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast, I have back Karen Woody. Karen is the Assistant Professor of Law at WNL Law School. Her areas of expertise include securities law, financial regulation, and white-collar crime. We visit about the recent Supreme Court argument in the Lew case and how it might or might not impact the SEC's ability to seek profit disgorgement for fraudsters in future administrative proceedings and court cases. The fascinating exploration of a case literally before the Supreme Court, which will be decided this year. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode, and I'm extraordinarily pleased to have back with me Karen Woody. Karen is assistant professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law, and we are going to take a deep dive into the Lou case, the Kokesh decision, profit disgorgement, restitution, and all things Security and Exchange Commission today. So, Karen, first of all, with an incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be back. So, Karen, uh, in the FCPA world, profit disgorgement is a huge topic. It can be a huge part of any fine and penalty levied or agreed to, rather, by a company, either via uh, deferred prosecution agreement, a um, non-prosecution agreement, uh, or other type of resolution. And now we have a uh, Supreme Court case that may threaten that. So could you uh, tell us what is profit disgorgement and is it different than restitution? Sure. That's, that's a great question and really is the question at the heart of this, uh, the case that you referenced in the Lou decision. So profit disgorgement or disgorgement in general really um, sort of means repayment or forfeiture essentially of ill-gotten gains. Um, it is different um, than restitution and that's determined, essentially the difference is determined on the fact that it is who you are paying it back to. So restitution typically is understood as repaying the victim, that you are, you know, making the victim whole. Whereas disgorgement is, um, you know, forfeiting ill-gotten gains, but typically that's meant that that goes back to, in the case of the FCPA, uh, the SEC, or as we saw in some of the declinations with disgorgement from the DOJ under um, the Corporate Enforcement Program, um, those disgorgement went to to the U.S. Treasury uh, as well. So that is what I think the 
the distinction is who are you paying once you've realized there's been ill-gotten gains who gets those back or who just keeps them in this in the case of disgorgement um it's typically disgorgement you know these are both you know long-standing equitable principles this is not new from the fcpa or from sort of anything else this has been something that has been around since roman times honestly this idea that if you have defrauded someone you need to give back the thing that you you have taken um and so it's 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 funny that it's still um being carved out or sort of the 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 parameters of these ideas are are still very much in litigation even even today so karen how does uh typically the uh securities and exchange commission uh view profit disgorgement and do they uh is there a reason the commission feels so strongly about this? Sure. I mean, disgorgement has been for a long time a, a very important tool in the SEC's arsenal when it when it deals with enforcement actions and, and going after uh, ill-gotten gains. Um, and so what's at issue here and what's sort of the wrinkle is that the SEC, although they have typically used it for, for decades, um, it's not statutorily authorized in the securities laws. Um, they, in fact, the first time they used disgorgement was actually in an insider trading case. It came out in 1970, the Texas Gulf Sulphur case. Um, and in that in that case, they really again went after the ill-gotten gains without sort of uh, a clear carve out in either the 33 or 34 Act that stated they could seek disgorgement. Um, it was sort of just seen as an equitable remedy at the time that they also wanted to, to carve to, to claw back those ill-gotten gains. So that's 1970, and then you fast forward a little bit to 1990, and the Securities Enforcement Remedies and the Penny Stock Reform Act that Congress passed in 1990 did allow the SEC to seek disgorgement in administrative proceedings. Um, so the language in that uh, law and that statute said that the SEC could enter an order requiring an accounting and disgorgement, including reasonable interest in those cases. But that really was the first time we saw the term and the word disgorgement um, written in the statute that authorized the SEC to, to go after it. Uh, that gets expanded a little bit um, in 2002 with Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, which uh, amended Section 21 of the Exchange Act that's allowed the SEC to seek. Um, and not only does it allow the SEC to seek, it also allowed any federal court to grant um, what was considered equitable relief that may be appropriate or necessary for the benefit of investors. And that language actually from Sarbanes-Oxley that got written back into the Exchange Act um, is at the heart of what this this case before the court this past term was about. So, like I said, SEC has always, has, certainly in the FCPA context, it has always leaned heavily on this um, using disgorgement as um, – Again, one of its many tools to make sure that the, they are properly enforcing um, the laws. Karen, I had thought that the Penny Stock Act, uh, as it was incorporated into the 34 Exchange Act, and that language came into the FCPA, answered this question, but it, it, it didn't seem to. Can you explain why the language of the Penny Stock Act does not control here? 
uh, it's a good question. I guess um, the thought there was that this dealt with um, the SEC's. I always understood that as it that, that was particular to when you're in the administrative proceeding posture. Um, maybe I should ask you what your understanding of that was, because that's how I distinguish those things as opposed to being in federal court when you're in the sort of home court of the SEC or in any other administrative proceeding. That's when we can allow um, that language saying that they could demand disgorgement in that situation, um, but not otherwise. Uh, was that your understanding, Tom? Uh, I had a more expansive reading of administrative proceeding. Okay. Uh, I had really interpreted that to, I thought all, uh, SEC actions were some form of administrative proceeding, even if they went to a federal district court with a cease and desist order. But um, perhaps, uh, well, that that was why I thought the Penny Stock Act controlled. Oh, that's an interesting way to see that. Uh, I guess with a cease and desist, I still would think that administrative proceeding. That's a great question. I actually don't. I, mean, I have to think about that more more broadly. Um, and so it, the question is then, do you think that the Sarbanes-Axley uh, was superfluous beyond the Penny Stock Act uh, language? Well, I guess I had not, in, I had not really concerned myself with the uh, uh, Sarbanes-Axley changes because I thought the Penny Stock Act controlled. Uh, I, I, well, in the Lew case, they do go back to this sort of idea of the Section 21 of the Exchange Act, which is what where we see that that language from Sarbanes-Oxley going back in. And they really did focus on this any equitable relief um, clause that this, that Sarbanes-Oxley sort of had added in. Um, and so I think that's why I sort of focus more on that language as opposed to simply the Penny Stock Act's uh, language. And either way, um, the question still turns on what, how we interpret disgorgement, meaning does it fall under the, a broader umbrella of equitable relief or is it uh, a, a penalty, sort of a punitive measure? That's kind of what, so whether, you know, whether we take the language from Penny Stock Act or from Sarbanes, actually, that, that might not matter in terms of what the court is really wrestling with. So we had a decision, I think about 18 months ago, but maybe a little bit longer, called Kokesh. And Kokesh dealt with a different uh, question before the Supreme Court, but in a footnote, the court seemed the Supreme Court seemed to open the door to the uh, appeal mm-hmm. that Lou filed that we find ourselves uh, talking about today. Right, right. So Kokesh was a real uh, that shook up the SEC and sort of remedies community and all these people think about that uh, idea of what disgorgement is because. As I said, this has been a, a concept that's been around for centuries, and so the idea that this has sort of been housed under um, the equitable remedies as opposed to a penalty, that got sort of turned on its head under Kokesh, because Kokesh came to the court, it was a 2017 opinion, and it was uh, a circuit split, actually, between the 10th and 11th circuits. There was a, a case from 2013 called Gabelli versus SEC, um, and there the court said that um, an enforcement action that would seek a civil penalty, fine, or forfeiture had to be brought within five years from the date uh, that the conduct occurred or was discovered. So it was a statute of limitations case with sort of the classic five years statute of limitations for fraud. Um, and so they applied that even to the SEC. So the question then was, 
does disgorgement fall under one of those terms, civil penalty, uh, fine, or forfeiture? And the 11th Circuit had held that disgorgement was the equivalent of forfeiture and therefore was subject to that five-year statute of limitations. And Kokesh was a 10th Circuit case that had gone the other way that said disgorgement was not forfeiture, instead is you know, seen as this equitable remedy not, tip, not subject to the statute of limitations. So then the case went up to the court, which actually grew with the 11th Circuit side of that, that said, you know, this falls under the ambit of a civil penalty and therefore is subject to this five-year statute of limitations. But you're right, they had this really important footnote three of that case that basically said, you know, this uh, this only applies, you know, here, uh, meaning nothing, It's it was almost a sort of get out of jail. And, and the footnote says basically nothing in this opinion should, well, I'll even read it out loud, it's nothing in this opinion should be interpreted as an opinion on whether courts possess authority to order disgorgement in SEC enforcement proceedings. Um or, so, or whether the courts have properly applied discouragement principles. So it was basically they tried to cabin Kokesh to just the case at bar, um, which, you know, everyone has really taken sort of the little crack of the, the door opening there and tried to, to, to swing the door wide open of saying, actually, no, you came out in Kokesh and said discouragement is a penalty, and so for that reason, we're going to just take the next few logical steps, which is you can't, you can't demand this. And so that's where Lou is piggybacking on that of saying, hey, uh, demanded disgorgement is a penalty. It's not statutorily authorized. Um, we're not, you know, Lou, Lou is coming out and trying to say this is something that is beyond what, what you can demand um, in, in a penalty uh, or certainly in the remedy. So that's where we get to from, from the Lou case. Yeah, you've got the uh, you just articulated the Lou position in this case. What's the uh, commission's position? Um, the the SEC, I think, is trying to say um, that it has a very broad reading of disgorgement and sort of says, if anything, we've done it this way forever. Is a lot of the the substance of their argument, which is you know. Um, the equitable relief that is available under the Exchange Act, or that same language we were just referring to earlier, um, has a long history of, of being used by the SEC and certainly in a lot of lower court decisions. Um, and so they, I think, try to, again, sort of very much piggyback on the idea that Congress has essentially approved this, particularly when they added this um, portion in 2002 about this sort of any equitable relief that should go to the benefit of investors. So they wanted disgorgement to be seen um, again. If anything, it's 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 an interesting argument. They're trying to really rely essentially on the language of footnote three of saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa this you know we're, they didn't say that this shouldn't um, apply to other cases that that there shouldn't be disgorgement it shouldn't just be tossed out the window entirely." It certainly has a long tradition of being used and it has an important plays an important role in securities cases. So they that's the side that the SEC came down on. So what were you able to glean from the oral arguments uh, at the court, uh, Karen? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it was sort of an interesting uh, argument. Uh, it seemed that based on the questioning, specifically from Ginsburg. Uh, that the court is reticent 
um, to do away with disgorgement entirely. Uh, they don't, they're not really wanting to accept that the SEC is not ever entitled to disgorgement, uh, unless it's statutorily authorized. They really do. They don't want to, um, throw the baby out with the bathwater type of idea. However, they also seem to push back against the SEC's, uh, position and it's very broad reading of the term disgorgement. Um, and so I, it's funny when you ask your initial question about disgorgement versus restitution, because I think that is a lot of what is at play or seem to be at play in oral argument under this case, which was some of sort of the, you know, bad taste in their mouth about disgorgement being read too broadly, I think did turn on some of this idea of well, why is disgorgement just going back to the SEC or the U S treasury? So there was a little bit of discussion about that, about, you know, certainly from Kavanaugh and a few others that said, you know, shouldn't we be giving this back to the people who have been defrauded? Um, so reading into disgorgement, also this sort of restitutionary idea. Um, but I, I think all told the justices seemed frankly, most convinced maybe by the, one of the amicus briefs filed by um, a, a group of law professors, one of whom, um, is my colleague at Washington Lee, Doug Rendleman, and they are remedies professors, and they they really did try to uh, sort of split this in the sense of saying disgorgement, of course, is an equitable remedy. It's longstanding. But they tried to turn it to say it needs to be very clearly tied to net profits as opposed to a broad open the door to um, – they essentially said anything beyond net profits would be a penalty. Um, so Kokesh isn't wrong in that sense. If this is anything beyond true ill-gotten gains from the fraud, then it's a penalty. But if you've cabinet to net profits, then maybe um, it should be that that is what we see as uh, the true disgorgement of ill ill-gotten gains. It did seem like that might be how the court sort of compromises on this uh, on this case. Uh, that was my take on sort of hearing that oral argument. Just sitting back isn't the most basic fundamental kind of position here that should fraudsters be allowed to keep their ill-gotten gains? Uh, isn't there an, um, a common law remedy that uh, government should be able to avail itself of? That's a great question. I think that's uh, exactly what the court doesn't want. No one wants these people, the, the fraudsters, to be able to keep the profits by any sense. I do think they are animated by the idea that the the Victims should be repaid. Um, there's definitely certainly that. And then, you know, what's tricky, and as you and I both know, in the in the FCPA context, it's hard to figure out who those victims are or where that where that goes. So restitution is uh, under inclusive in that sense, meaning if you can't just repay the victims, you shouldn't throw your hands up and walk away. There still should be again this clawing back of any ill gotten gains. Um, and so I think that's why the court is not willing to just do away with disgorgement um, and, and try to cabin this only to repaying people who they can prove are, are victims. And so I guess to your question, I think absolutely nobody wants there to be a windfall here for fraudsters. And, and I think that that would be something the court, we wouldn't see anything like that in the decision from the court on this um, yeah, that, that's my thought about that. Is there a is there a countervailing position though that says because government has such powers 
that if they're going to be given authority to take anything, um, that, that that taking authority has to be specifically laid out so mm. that if the bodies who make the rules, i.e. the Senate or, or the U.S. Congress, did not make that specific grant of authority to the Securities and Exchange Commission, it should not be presumed. And that's the SEC's argument is sort of tagging this or pinning all this on that phrase that came out of the Sarbanes-Axley, this, you know, any equitable relief, um, you know, remedy that they, they can avail themselves of that would be appropriate or necessary to benefit investors. And that's really the language that the SEC is hanging it's had on is saying this is essentially our statutory authorization is where we see this. You know, I could back up even a little bit further saying, but also disgorgement was used prior to 2002 again under this idea that as a remedy in equity, you know, it's, you know, query whether that always maybe is something that is on, on, uh, on the as on the list of options as you know do we always have to have every possible remedy here be statutorily authorized that's sort of i think also swirling in some of these cases um and so i think the sec is saying one maybe yes that would be one argument and then the other is that we actually do think there's statutory authorization here under that sarbanes-oxley language or actually as you pointed out even the penny stock reform language so karen this case is not only uh uh, factually interesting and legally interesting, but huge implications for uh, some of the areas that we both uh, dabble and practice in. Uh, I hope that uh, the court will still be issuing opinions uh, as they normally do to the end of their term, because uh, this one is going to be really interesting to see which way it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. So, Karen, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I greatly look forward to uh, continuing the conversation with you. Yeah, I do too. Thanks again, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join me again next week where we take up another topic on the FCPA Compliance Report. If you haven't done so, please check out my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus, where I bring clarity and sanity to the compliance practitioner during this health crisis. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.